Hello, 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 and welcome to another Clearwater Jazz Holiday Foundation's Young Lions Jazz Master Virtual Sessions. I am your host, Michael Canodal, and today's educator is none other than the Dr. Pete Carney, and the topic is soloing over inner urge. Now, I am super excited today to just sit in this session and just soak into all of this wisdom that Dr. Carney is going to give us. As you know, he is an awesome saxophonist and an even more awesome educator. But before we get started, I just want to remind you, if you have any questions, because we know we have many people joining us live, uh, there's a little feature in there that's called chat. So if you have questions or comments, go in there. We're going to leave some time near the end to answer any questions. And we love interaction. And I want to tell you, this would not be possible without our awesome sponsors. So please be sure to check out the studio archives or past video sessions at clearwaterjazz.com's education outreach section. That's brought to you by Blue Water Wealth Management at Stewart Partners and Duke Energy. As well as our Young Lines podcast available wherever you stream. And that's brought to you by our friends at Marine Max Clearwater. Search Young Lines Jazz Master Virtual Sessions wherever you stream. So, where do I get started? I mean, Dr. Carney's given us so many uh, great sessions. I mean, from improvising, um, talking about the business, how to build a good solo. And of course, you can go back into our past archives and check out all of those great sessions. If you don't know who Dr. Carney is, he is the director of jazz studies at State College of Florida in Bradenton. Um, you've probably heard and seen him on many, many stages, not just here in uh, the Tampa Bay and Bradenton area, but all over the country and all over the world. So he's definitely a wealth of resources for our education and jazz. So we're going to hand it over to him. And Dr. Carney, the stage yeah. is all yours. Thanks, Michael. Um, excited to work on this uh, this great tune, Inner Urge. Um, I thought it'd be great to go through this month and do some specifics on different tunes and like how to approach them. A lot of jazz tunes are important or they become standards because they're etudes of something different. They're not the same etude over and over again. I think I learned that after about 20 years, like, oh, this is an etude. If you think of like all the things you are is an etude and moving around the cycle of fourths um, and, you know, changing progressions and being able to follow that uh, through a, basically diatonic key, but it has a bridge that's different. And, but, you know, following progressions, um, if you look at Stella by Starlight, it's kind of an etude and going through half diminished and dominant altered or altered dominant chords. Um, and one that a lot of kids like to play is Inner Urge, and it's a great jam session tune. Um, and it's a lot of fun to play because you could, it has these, it's, it's this modal sections that bounce from one chord to the next. So you have four different modes, and then you go through these uh, one measure changes in different major keys. Um, it's a really fun song to solo over because you get to stretch out and each chord changes the mood a little bit and you have to adapt to that mood of the scale. Um, it's not technically really hard uh, with some of the tips I'm gonna give you today. Um, 
it, it's great because it gets you working on four bar phrases and you get to feel four bars and you really have to change on the next four bars. So it, the strength of the tune and the reason it's become a standard to me is that ability to play modal um, in a different way than impressions and applying uh, four bar phrases one after the other in a solo rather than impressions is like 16 bars and then eight and then eight again, you know? So the thing I'll say about Inner Urge is it's a great song to play at certain jam sessions where you have a jazz audience there. All right. If you are coming to sit in with uh, some professional guys and you ask to play Inner Urge and it's, it's not a, like, um, not a sort of, I don't want to say advanced listening audience, but people that are passionate about jazz, uh, it can be a turnoff tune. So that's the danger. I've seen it many times where people come in and there's a group of folks in the audience that aren't really sure about jazz, but they like what they're hearing. And there's a nice vocalist and there's just a good vibe. Maybe they like, you know, Sinatra and Duke Ellington and all that. If you come in with inner urge in that crowd, it can kind of disrupt things. And some people just don't quite get the dissonance yet. Um, so just be aware of that. Like there's a good time to play inner urge and there's the wrong time. Um, so with that said, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a jazz, uh, jazz crowd favorite today, especially on young, young people. It's become more popular than it was maybe 20 years ago, I think. Um, now people are playing Inner Urge a lot, and it's common to play it at a session as long as the audience is hip to it. So there's a lot of cool things to talk about here in the chords. Um, and I was going to pull, I'm going to show you this PDF here in um, B flat, just so uh, I don't know, I just think about this chart in B flat, and I can easily, you know, flip it the information to C. I'll talk about C and B flat at the same time. All right, so let me put this up here. Um, obviously, you should spend some time listening to the melody. You know, you should study the way Joe Henderson plays it. You should listen to 10 different versions of it, not just Joe Henderson, but you should listen to the way other people play it more recently and have an awareness of the language of the song and the way people have soloed before you. It's not um, really about building your own solo uh, in a vacuum. You have to build your solo in the information of people that have gone before you to connect with the conversation. All right. Um, some tough chords here, some tough chords on the surface. Um, but the reason people like playing it is because they all go back to major. All these chords go back to a, basically a major scale, uh, except for the C7, you see two bars from the end. Um, and it's one, the reason I wanted to do this is because when you know how to play it, it's something you can go play everywhere and students will get it, uh, like, you know, players get into it. And it's a great tune to take a step up in your playing. Um, let's say you're, you know, comfortable playing, you know, blues or killer or um, Sister Sadie, or these type of tunes, Inner Urge definitely pushes you in a new direction to improvise with. Um, so the first thing I was going to say is you need to just practice this like a scale etude. Okay, so um, 
one of the mistakes uh, mid-level improvisers get into is they're practicing soloing the same way all the time. So I find one of the best ways to get out of that habit is to create, uh, is to practice songs as if they're a scale etude. You, you don't, if you continue to improvise the same way with the same thought process every day, you will keep sounding the same. So you have to play games with yourself to stay out of what you're usually thinking and try and think in a different way. And the best way to think of that is to find etudes in the song. Like today, I'm gonna just play scales over this tune. Just straight, don't worry about the improv part, just improvise straight scales over over the song, or I'm just gonna work on playing thirds going up, or I'm gonna play sequences like one, two, three, five, um, or one, three, four, five. Uh, today, I'm just going to work on whole notes, or I'm just gonna play half note melodies over the song. Those are all super beneficial, and they're games that will really keep you out of playing the same way over and over again. A lot of times what you hear is like like you you'll hear something um like this oh wait i lost my uh where's my track i play up here it is i'm just gonna go from the beginning here a lot of times you'll hear this like just kind of a rhythmic kind of punchiness, um, which is an important thing, but it's real easy. I hear this in a lot of young players where they're stuck in this rut of trying to improvise all the time. You don't really need to get better at jazz. You don't need to try and improvise the whole time. You need to practice things and objects that are different than what you naturally come up with improvisationally. You have to think about it like you're trying to build a library of things that you can do. And you can't re if you keep reinforcing the same library to your brain, that's the only library you have. So your licks become consistent throughout any song, you know? So, for example, on this first chord, it would be better for me to, uh, and this is the same for me too. I'm not talking um, uh, down to you or across to you. This is the same thing I still practice, which is trying to get out of the way you play on a daily basis. If you're not finding a new way to play, you're just repeating yourself, All right? So that's the challenge of improvisation is the daily commitment to play with a method differently than I played last time. Not just play differently like anything. Um, think about a routine. So let's say I was just gonna practice uh, half notes today. Great little routine here. something different because you're you're forcing yourself to um to be in a different part of the horn than you usually start from um let's play that same routine starting from the third mm -hmm. 
playing those half notes, I found out that I could connect to, uh, for me, I could hit the C right here on the F major and then turn that into a B. So that was a beautiful little moment um, that I wouldn't find if I just practiced the same way. You find that you'll, at the early stages, you'll always start from the root of the chord, and then you kind of get a little better and you start practicing from the third. And so I'd encourage you to also practice starting from the fifth, starting from the seventh of the chord, um, also starting from the ninth. Um, if I start from another note in that chord, let's say the sixth or the fourth, um, in a just a typical chord, I would know that that is something of an offbeat probably, right? Because the sixth or the fourth aren't strong chord tones. And so your audience is gonna be kind of, um, they're gonna feel, a little confused by the note choice and you will too you, it, it's a sort of like a passive note in a sense it's not a strong chord tone most of the time now i feel like i i'm trying to get closer and closer to the chord tones when i was younger i was trying to in a sense stretch away from the chord tones and play other stuff but now i've i've come back around in in a lot of ways where i feel like just looking for like the goal post is the goal, you know, the chord tones are the reason. <laughs> so you just get, and your audience gets it too. I can tell you that if I just play two fours and sixes, you know, or nine, six, two, whatever. Um, if I don't play strong chord tones, it feels like I'm um, a little detached from the nature of the song. And so um, why would I do that? Why would I play this tune if I'm not playing this tune, right? That's the sound you create. And your audience will feel that way too. That's the thing you learn from playing in public is they actually want to hear the right notes. I know we talk about in jazz, there's not right notes and wrong notes, but you know, I, um, I kind of do think there are right notes more and more than I used to. Um, you can always start on a dissonant note, but you have to find your way to the right note pretty quickly, right? Let me give you an example. Um, if I started on, this is a, for me, it's a G sharp um, half diminished chord. If I start on um, what people say, there's no wrong notes. Well, I'll start on a wrong note. If I don't get out of it, I'm in trouble. I'll not get out of it. <laughs> I can play that lick. It's an, you know, and like Wayne Shorter can pull that off, especially, but I need to get to something. I need to get to where I'm, what the chord is about or because if, if you're ignoring the chord, this chord doesn't exist. And then your solo and that chord are not in the same planet, you know? So you can't practice enough um, chord tones, especially on a tune like inner urge here. Okay. Um, so I was talking about half notes. Let's try something even uh, more basic, which is whole notes. Mm -hmm. 
imagine what's the benefit of that one i'm finding choice uh choice notes that are interesting um i'm finding connections trying to move by whole step or minor third but mostly trying to just stay uh on the first part i was trying to just stay with whole steps that will force you into new notes that you don't usually play okay um let's talk, another thing we talked about was Let's take something like one, two, three, four of the scale and then move it up to the next note of the scale. You could think of it as two, three, four, five if you want, but one, two, three, four, two, three, four, five, three, four, five, six, four, five, six, seven. If, if you want to get that technical, but I, honestly, I just tell people start with one, two, three, four, and then move it up through the scale. Um, Try that. Jake, um, the benefit there is I'm learning new stuff, you know. I usually, I practice a lot of one, two, three, fives, um, but this one, two, three, four, I don't practice as much and I just learned something new. Now let's take that. I would do that like three or four times through the tune. Um, like kind of think of it like mildly improvising, you know, like you're just sort of improvising. You're not full uh, coming up with whatever is in your head because that's when you usually fall back to what you can already play, all right? Um, again, let's take that one, two, three, four thing and make it a little bit more when I when I'm good at it, you know, when I'm really good at it, then it's like, okay, the next step is to to tinker with it. It gets it wears itself out musically you don't feel as much and your audience wouldn't enjoy that solo too much either but that's not what you're trying to do you're trying to practice different parts of the instrument and trying to stay on a routine that builds a railroad through the wild country you don't know about yet that's the really the best way i feel about it is there's always a new part of the neighborhood whether it's your saxophone or just the scale that you don't know about there's a new part, a new way to explore that frontier, and you have to build little tracks to get out into the woods, sort of. All right. Um, what else would I do with this? Well, we talked about doing thirds. <laughs> just like Joe Henderson, you know what I mean? <laughs> As a compliment to him, you can hear him practicing when he solos. You can hear the routine to the point that he doesn't feel, um, he doesn't feel like that routine is a crutch. The, the routine is the um, way to the promised land. Uh, again, take that thirds idea and make it even more elastic when you're good at it. Mm -hmm. 
something I've never played before a few things I had never played that means I have the potential down the road to improvise with those new objects um, but the only way you really discover them is again staying out of your usual neighborhoods all right um, let's try fourths let's do fourths for a minute from the beginning and again I'm practicing kind of liberally like I'm not uh, it's not a scale book you know uh, I do feel like there's a liberation and it makes it a little more enjoyable if you practice it once you have it together, take it that next step and practice ad-libbing with it. You know, it's not true improvisation. It's just sort of ad-libbing. Fourths. <laughs> All right, you get the idea. Tough tune, tough tune, but it'll, it becomes simpler with a process to learn about it. It's not, you have to go through a process of, of discovery and not think of it like, oh, I'm just going to play whatever comes to mind. You don't have much to come to mind when you're starting out to improvise because you haven't researched the chords enough to find what you can say with it, you know? Um, it, it gets you, these, these things are so much better than, um, just improvising over the tune. The actual improvisation has to draw from something. You cannot play something you haven't played before. It, I, you know, the concept of improvisation being this magical stuff and playing whatever you feel, well, your feeling should come from a research of information. It doesn't come from the sky, you know? Uh, let's just take something simpler, like just straight scales up, up and down this tune. You can hear this in other players for sure, where they just blaze through the scales. Um, that's a great sound. It's very fluid. And um, this is where you have to kind of practice your scales as a jazz language rather than your classical scales. Um, at this point in, in teaching, I feel like they don't help you play jazz that much. They are basic information, but if you're not practicing your scales with jazz style, you're still gonna sound square and you're not going to be happy playing jazz. It'll always feel awkward because uh, you have to, you, knowing scales isn't knowing scales in the jazz way. You have to know them with an articulation, a dialect that sounds like jazz. So like, for example, for that, I mean, um, instead of practicing my A major scale, like I, there's part of me that wishes this was banned you know from music education um because i you i've only heard it used by haydn once <laughs> or twice in a different piece i just find that it, it it's just cute and it it doesn't really do anything if i was even even if i'm teaching classical i teach my students to go up to the ninth instead uh, 
much more useful, right? And there's a lot of uh, iterations of that in music everywhere. So now think about that. You have, to, for, and then if you're making the transition to really play jazz, you have to start practicing your scales with your articulating the upbeat and keeping the notes long. So you get this sound. So the first step is people trying, their tongue is so used to playing the scale the other way that you get this first as a young player. Right? And that's so ingrained in us that you have to reverse the habit and try and tongue those upbeats. It doesn't matter if you're a bass player or if you're a drummer or a flute player or whatever instrument you play. It is the same, same problem for everybody. One, uh, not practicing your jazz, your scales in a jazz style enough. Um, the, the tricky part is tonguing the upbeats and not letting the downbeat shorten up. This happens on everybody's instrument. I, with guitar players, I teach this, and saxophone, and every, universally, here's what happens first when people start articulating the upbeats. They, they, the next beat, the downbeat gets short, so you get this sound, which isn't all the way there yet. The only now the articulation is right, but the downbeat is wrong. And it's sort I think it's sort of a natural music phenomenon or something because it happens in guitar players' hands and it happens on reed instruments and it happens in brass. So the simplest way I've I've learned to explain it is keep everything long. Now you're in the neighborhood. You can add some other articulations later, but you have to have this foundational style. This sounds like jazz. All the notes are generally long and your tongue in the upbeats. <laughs> right it, it's it's jazz as long as i keep keep everything moving keep the airstream going through the notes don't let it shorten up it's something of a um conundrum for about a year or two and then you know i've seen people come through that and they're like wow it's finally sounds like jazz it was they were playing the right notes they weren't they were letting the the downbeats get shrink up in a sense because you're tonguing that upbeat and the downbeat is trying to for some reason sort of shorten up so that you can get to the next note with your tongue you have to just kind of keep that airstream moving and blow through the lines so like i said for that just practicing my jazz scale style over this is a great workout um let's hear some of that and then my improvisation develops from my ability to keep the style long it doesn't i i start improvising um when i feel like 
the style is correct. So if you have to do this, do this. Just getting, make you don't, again, don't work on imp improvising. You're working on your style. The, the color of your playing is just as important. There are plenty of players that don't play a lot, but they have good style and you feel that in their music. You can have great physical technique. Um, like a lot of times I'll have good classical play students. They have amazing technique and absolutely no concept of style. And they actually don't even hear jazz. Like they don't even hear that they're not playing jazz. They think that that's sort of just what they sound like. And there's also sometimes this like, well, that like, that's how I play the saxophone. Well, not, you know, that's not really going to work. Um, you have to, you have to think of jazz and classical music as connected in a big uh, spectrum of music. They're not totally separate. You just have to learn the languages of each other's neighborhood and and cross over those bridges until that bridge becomes completely solid and you realize that they're all part of the same thing. You know, I, I think part of our problem is teaching it as two separate things rather than um, one big thing with different accents depending on what neighborhood you're in sort of. <laughs> um, let's talk about the, again, just practicing your scales over this, more valuable far more valuable than practicing improvising over it. Let's talk about the chord changes here um, and the part that makes it really fun to play. Uh, I'm gonna blow this up so I hope you can see it pretty well. All right, that should be good. Um, so this first chord um, in concert, this is F sharp half diminished uh, and B flat. This is G sharp half diminished. Okay, great little shortcut here. If I see uh, G sharp half diminished, that is the last step of A major. This looks like a hot mess, but it is not a hot mess. It, you just don't know how to get to a major scale if it, if it seems really tough, right? G sharp, B, D is the flat five, and then F sharp. That's, that's the last step of A major. That's the beauty and the total joy of playing inner urge is that you have this beautiful dissonant chord here and you get to play a major over it and it sounds like a a major you've never never heard of because you are introduced to like a new concept of modal playing which means that if you take your major scale there's actually seven colors for that scale depending on the bass note whatever is in the bass changes the nature of a major in this case, the G sharp makes that chord scale of A major seem like a totally different world. So instead of getting this, we start on the G sharp and we get a G sharp Locrian or A, or basically your A major scale over G sharp. So instead of this, we get this. Beauty of it is that you're, everybody knows their A major scale, hopefully, um, and so you're just learning to play from the seventh note of it. 
if you just play a major over it it doesn't quite work you have to really think about the g sharp being the root here okay And then it goes down a half step to G major uh, flat five, or you could call this sharp 11, which is the same as your D major scale. If we're in concert, this is your F major scale, uh, F major uh, Lydian, which is the same as your C major scale over F. Um, so you get this sound. <laughs> A little bit of Danny Elfman sound there. Um, the next one is the same uh, on this sheet in B flat here and a B flat sheet where uh, F major seven flat five just means sharp 11, or you can all, I, I like to think of it as a sharp four, to be honest, because the fifth still sounds good here. Um, whereas the natural fourth does not sound good. It's really sharp 11 and in a more simplified sense, it's your sharp four. Again, we, we, we call this sharp 11 to put it away from the root, put it up in the sky sort of, it's really just the fourth note of your scale up an octave, okay? That's a tricky part. I always like gave me fits for a long time. Like, okay, sharp 11, like who is that? Oh, wait you know, sharp nine, what is that? Sharp nine is also sharp two in a sense. When you're younger, it's, you have to kind of see where you're headed with that. That bridge is, is a, it's easier than you think, but it is hard to sort out in your head. Um, so again, from the top, we got this half diminished chord with a major scale, basically a major scale here, major scale with the F major seven flat five or sharp 11. Uh, major scale with the E flat major seven, uh, sharp 11. And then this, this, this is kind of like the giant steps moment of this tune. All right. You have to go from, uh, you have to go down through this sequence of major scales. It's not a, um, there, there's some exceptions, but if you look at it, it's going down in minor thirds. So you got F sharp dropping down to E flat major, E major dropping down to C sharp major, sharp 11. D major dropping down to B major, C7 is the exception, dropping down to A major nine. It just gives, this C7 here gives it a little more edge maybe. I don't know why he wrote that. You know, I'm, I'm gonna put words in his mouth. To me, it's almost like a, you know, a dominant chord that kind of makes it feel like an ending here, even though that's going down in minor thirds. Beautiful progression. Um, and this, this is a great point here to talk about um, Coltrane called uh, like changing clouds of chords. Uh, if you think about this as like going up your major scale and going up your major scale and going up your major scale, you're going to have that sound in your plane and it kind of sounds like this. Right, that means you're sort of addicted to playing the root and uh it's going to sound it's not going to be as interesting as you want so coltrane talked about this cloud of of chords and the notes are just changing in the cloud 
it's a much cooler way to think about this in the long run when you have your major scales under control in this neighborhood. So he, he, this was uh, like the F major seven is like the first cloud here. And then it turns into this E flat cloud where a lot of the notes are the same, but only a few are different. So the G sharp changes to a G. All right. Um, what else? The C sharp in the F sharp chord changes to a C, right? The cloud shifts. And if you can see those cloud changing, it's a lot of fun to play with that concept. Right? Or just try and box yourself into a neighborhood. Say, I'm just going to play in the middle of the horn. Right? That boxing yourself in is the game of improvisation of building new material. I'm boxing myself into a, a rule and saying I'm not going to play outside of that rule. This will make create like identifiable progress quickly in your soloing is is having a rule that you're improvising with in your routine. You're not just playing stuff. Um, that is a thing, but it is not the main thing that makes you an improviser. Um, so again, like, let's say I'm going to take a sequence through that, but try and move across the chords elegantly without going dropping. So the, the basic way is to take a sequence and just go down, you know, or follow the chords. Right, but that becomes a little bit wonky, right? It, it, the audience will, will figure it out by the end and not be that impressed with it. What's more impressive is to be able to elegantly change sequences in the middle of the chord. Right? I'm boxed into a neighborhood. I'm trying to stay within a certain range of the horn so that my idea makes sense. Listener, and I'm changing directions on the second chord. I was still playing the sequence on every other chord, but I'm uh, the diversity of the thing gives it a two bar phrase rather than being one bar, one bar, one bar. The chords are already one bar, a piece, right? So if you want to make it interesting, try and play a line over the first, the, the four bars here and bar 17. Try and play one line going straight up through it. Right? So I'm, I'm playing a longer line across the whole thing, which will really kind of um, bug uh, the listener and people you're playing with will dig it because it's in a sense, it's like contrary motion against the chords that are bouncing but down by minor thirds, even though it's not exactly contrary motion, it's a contrary object going ascending while these chords are dropping um, in minor thirds. Um, so let's put some of all that together. So I get this play along up here. Mm 
Um, yeah, so I'll play, I'll play one, uh, chorus very limited and I'll say I'll do it in, um, kind of a half, half, uh, half note idea moving in thirds and then becoming more aggressive. And the second chorus, I'll apply that, um, in a more abstract way, which is what we're headed towards, right? Um, we're headed towards more creativity through discipline. But the first chorus, I'll I'll play um, very restrained half notes. idea very very mechanically the first chorus and in the second chorus uh you can hear yourself running into joe henderson i could hear myself oh that joe henderson did that same thing too you start to learn the history of how the melody was created when you improvise with a discipline that is restrained because you run into methodical thinking and or organized thinking okay so again just to sum everything up Practice with a reason to do something different every day. Practice, pick a, an etude, whether it's half notes, quarter, uh, half notes, whole notes, um, moving in thirds, moving in fourths, and let that be the foundation of the most, the, the largest part of what you practice. Um, and then try and play some stuff like we did contrary to the progressions at the end. If you approach it that way, I think you'll find that you um, you develop more material quickly rather than feeling stuck in your old habits. Um, so I think that that's good for today. I hope that helps. And you can always reach out to me um, at, at State College of Florida. My email is carneyp at scf.edu, or you can um, find me around St. Pete playing jazz all over the place. All right. Thanks a lot. Awesome, Dr. Carney. I, I love when you said practice with a reason. And right. uh, that that is so uh that's so on it because you know I sometimes I hear people just practicing the stuff that they're good at. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And that's for sure time for us to work on the stuff that you know, like you said, try different patterns, you know, start these uh scale patterns in different places. Um, just there's all kinds of tools that you gave us today, all kinds of great nuggets that I think we could um all add to our regimen of practice. And I love how you explain how you hear some players, you know, when they're soloing, uh, you you can hear what they're practicing, their practice, regimen, right? You know? Oh man, you can hear in Joe Henderson solos, you can always hear what he was working on the last week, you know, <laughs> like.
it doesn't often show up. I think when you get better, it can show up quickly in your playing. It, it does take time. You know, it's not like you can practice thirds and then it's all of a sudden going to show up this week. Like it takes like, to me, it takes like six weeks mm. for it to, to really become, get into your psyche where you can use it as improvisation. Um, so you got to think about building that library for six, six weeks from now. Yeah. So that's great. I want to encourage, you know, maybe we have some young listeners here and they're wondering, you know, how long is it going to take me to really sound like this or, you know, get where I want to get. And uh, I'm glad you said that word that nobody likes to hear time. Right. <laughs> so I take patience. And even yeah. the guys that have been doing this 20 and 30 years, they're, they're still trying to grow and, and, you know, get better at what they do and, and invent. Yeah. So, I mean, even today when I was playing some of that stuff, you realize I haven't played that before. You know what I mean? That's, and if I just sort of showed up to improvise today, like that's not going to happen on stage, you know, mm -hmm. but that's where you have to find things you haven't played if you're going to keep growing and you need a, a little short, small routine to think about that'll push you away from your usual self. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know what? I want to remind everybody that, you know, if you're enjoying this session and you want more uh, content like this, or, you know, you say, hey, you know, what else could they possibly have, you know, in this wide library? Well, we have it. All you have to do is go into our archives. We have many sessions of uh, great educators and performers uh, like Dr. Carney. Um, and you can go to our website, www.clearwaterjazz.com slash education and uh, check out those archives. And the cool part about this is all of this stuff is free and all the upcoming sessions, they're free. So share, share, share with everybody, you know, that could benefit from this. So, and if you happen to say you have a topic that you really want to hear or artists you want us to cover, uh, just email us at info at clearwaterjazz.com. We would love to hear back from you and um, any kind of, um, you know, feedback that we can get. We love hearing from our listeners. So thank you again, Dr. Carney, for everything today. This was an awesome session. And um, I've been your host, Michael Canodal. Until next time, like we always say around here, keep it swinging, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs>